This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Well, basically, I got my instrument scan going because without any lights outside, it didn't really matter if I was in the clouds or not. It was like flying in a coal mine. It was completely pitch black in there. And I really had to hold a straight course for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's a long distance and you don't want to go wandering all over the sky and burning gas. And number two is I had no idea what the winds were locked Because when I left Morocco, I'd gotten almost no weather briefing. There was none available. No winds aloft for an 1,800-mile flight. So I was basically just hold the GPS heading for as long as it works. And after that, it's going to be prey. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations, and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is ferry pilot Carrie McCauley. Carrie has logged over 9,000 hours, all of it in general aviation airplanes. He's commercial rated, got a multi-engine rating and instrument rating, and he's got over 100 crossings with the Pacific Atlantic Caribbean International Crossings. He's written a book called Ferry Pilot that's gotten great acclaim by pilots. And Carrie was actually the star of our Pressure Over the Atlantic Real Pilot Story that ASI released on our YouTube channel. Carrie, welcome to the There I Was podcast. Thanks, Richard. So, Carrie, you have so many stories. The video you did with us, Pressure Over the Atlantic, that came out in December of 2020, was so well-received. In fact, it set records for ASI viewership in the first month. And during the, uh, the comments on YouTube, many people said, yeah, this is interesting. You ought to read his book, Ferry Pilot. He's got even more stories, which is why we reached back out to you and said, hey, you've got a couple more here. So, And I think there were a couple where you were talking about an alternator failure and some other demanding situations that we can learn from as GA pilots. Do you mind sharing some of those with us? Sure, I'd be happy to. Okay, great. Can we start with the alternator failure? Talk to us about that. All right, well... I was hired to ferry a Cessna 210 from St. Paul, Minnesota to Dodoma, Tanzania back in the early 90s. And most of the trip had gone pretty smoothly. Our, my route was Minneapolis to Bangor, Clear Customs, St. John's, Newfoundland, down to the Azores. And from there, I landed in Agadir, Morocco. The next leg was going to be from Agadir, Morocco, down to Abidjan, the Ivory Coast. It's all the way straight down the big bulge of Africa. It's an 1,800-mile leg over the Sahara Desert, and you usually fly that route at night because down by the Ivory Coast, it's very close to the equator. And when you get close to the equator, you get to an area called the Intertropical Convergence Zone. And what that means is Intertropical Convergence Zone produces massive thunderstorms almost every afternoon. It's just about guaranteed. 
So if you fly in the morning, you pretty much arrive at your destination at thunderstorm time. So to avoid that, you almost always fly that route at night. Hmm. So it gets to be, it's a, it's a 14 hour leg in a, in a 210. So it's a, it's a long ways because you have to fly it at max range settings to get there. I mean, I did have ferry tanks in the plane, but still you got to conserve your fuel. It can't, uh, can't go too fast. That particular night I had taken off kind of in a hurry because the control tower told me there was a sandstorm coming and I had to get out of there. So I like, oh, holy cow. So got out of there quick, about 10 o'clock at night. And right after I left, they closed the airport, hmm. which was kind of unnerving because usually like to have a few hours of flying before you have no no way back, right. you know, before you hit the point of no return. But like immediately after it took off, they closed the airport and they said, good luck because you're not coming back hmm. here. Great. The 1,800-mile route from Morocco to the Ivory Coast is completely barren. There is one town right kind of in the middle, Bamako in, in Mali, but there's not much there. So I settled down for a long, a long night in the plane, and about three hours into it, I had an RBL come on. An RBL is a really bad light. <laughs> Those big red lights in the cockpit you don't like to see. Okay. Uh, I looked over and it said low voltage. I'm like, low voltage? That's kind of odd. Looked at my ammeter and saw it was a draw instead of producing power. It's like, oh, that kind of got your attention. You know, you always hear about that in your training. You're like, hey, if you lose an alternator, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Especially at night, you need all the you need electricity. Right, yeah. So I uh, I turned off some things and saw, you know, turned off some lights, turned off the anti-collision light and a few other things, and it didn't get any better. I realized, yeah, it looks like I lost my alternator. So I turned off everything I could, turned off the turned the cockpit lights as dim as I could. And then the last thing I did was I was going to make a radio. I turned the autopilot off, which is a bummer because I had a long flight to go. But the autopilot uses a ton of electricity. Turned all the radios off except for the HF radio. Now, we, in these, when we're ferrying, we always carry an HF radio. It's called high-frequency radio. It's kind of a long-range radio, like a ham radio that allows you to talk long distances. And the last thing I was going to do was call ATC and tell them, hey, you're not going to hear from me for the rest of the night. Turn my radios off. I can't go back to Mar- Morocco, so I have to continue on to the Ivory Coast. And I figured I'd just let them know. But the second I keyed the mic, I realized I had made a huge mistake. Because right when I keyed the mic, everything in the cockpit went dark. Because hmm. the HF radio, I, I'd forgotten, didn't really know, but I, I kind of knew, uses a ton of electricity when it transmits. Okay. Yeah, so the second I keyed the mic, sucked all the juice out of the battery. Like, everything was dead. Like, oh, great. That was that was a big mistake. Luckily, I had my flashlight handy. You know, quick turned it on, looked at, shined it at the instruments because it's pitch black outside. I'd started out in the clouds, and over the Sahara, there's no lights, so there's, there's no outside reference. And I needed the flashlight to see the instruments, you know, artificial horizon, because if you can't see the instruments, you're going to lose control of the airplane. You have to see the instruments to, to fly. And about how high were you, Kerry? I was at about 12,000 feet or so. Okay. And there you're flying over terrain that's how high? It starts off at sea level. I mean, it starts off in Morocco. I think uh, the middle of Sahara is maybe only 1,000 feet or so. So I had okay. plenty of ground clearance. Yeah. Okay. A reasonably flat area of terrain. So I turned the flashlight on and uh, kind of got ready for a long night of flying by flashlight because I really didn't have any other choice. Now, this plane was one of the first planes that ever ferried that actually had a GPS in it, which is awesome. It was actually a panel mount GPS, which was both good and bad. The panel mount GPS has better reception because back in the early 90s, they lose you know, satellite signal a lot. Mm-hmm. 
but I kind of got complacent and I didn't bring along a handheld GPS. I was just kind of relying on this new fancy panel here, like nice GPS. Well, I got, it was still on after I turned everything off and I looked in the manual and said it had an internal battery, but I didn't know how long that was going to last. So I was holding the flashlight, hand flying, figuring, okay, well, I can't hold the flashlight all night. Kind of searched around. I finally managed to get the flashlight stuck in the headliner above me and just concentrate on flying straight course. So, Carrie, let me ask you, you said initially you were in the weather, but it almost seems like it wouldn't matter because it's so dark and there's no ground lights out there to maintain your horizon, your attitude. How, how were you doing that? What was your primary reference there? Well, basically, I got my instrument scan going because you're right. There was, without any lights outside, it didn't really matter if I was in the clouds or not. It was like flying in a coal mine. It was completely pitch black in there. Yeah. And and I really had to hold uh, you know a straight course for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's a long distance and you don't want to go wandering all over the sky and burning gas. Mm-hmm. And number two is I had no idea what the winds aloft were. Yeah. Because when I left Morocco, I'd gotten almost no weather briefing. There was none available. No winds aloft for an 1,800-mile flight. Mm. So I was basically just hold the GPS heading for as long as it works. And after that, it's going to be prey. And your attitude indicator is vacuum pump? It was vacuum driven? Yes, which is uh, okay. which is kind of nice because a lot of people these days are switching over from vacuum driven instruments to all electric. To electric. So in this in, in this case, it was nice. We all know the, the sort of treachery that vacuum pumps can cause if they, you know, if they fail and they can fail insidiously. But in this case, you were happy to have that vacuum pump. Oh, for sure. If I'd had a completely electrical system, I'd have been in serious trouble because I had no lights and literally I wouldn't have been able to see or control the plane. So the vacuum system saved my life initially. Yeah. So there you are, you're at uh, 12,000 feet or so, not even halfway through your trip yet, flying with a flashlight with good GPS navigation. However, you don't know how long that's going to last. Right. So I figured, you know, there there was that one city right in the middle, Bamako. Maybe I should try to, maybe I should try to land. Maybe I should try to knock this off and call it a night. So I altered course to Bamako. Luckily, it was pretty close to my direct light, my direct path. And when I got to Bamako, I was still in the clouds. So I I didn't have any approach plates for Bamako. I didn't have anything on in the GPS. I just had, you know, a mark on the on the GPS where the city was. No idea where the airport is, obstacles, clearance, anything like that. So I started circling, and as I got down to about 2,000 feet, I was kind of in between layers. I could see the glow of the city, but it was it was solid. And I just thought it was probably a bad idea to just go diving into the clouds at low altitude over a city, mm. wandering around blindly looking for an airport. So mm. I figured that was probably a bad idea, and I might as well just keep going on to the Ivory Coast because there was no salvation there. So continued on the way. So you just climbed back up to your cruise altitude and set course for Ivory Coast again. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And by the way, how many hours was this into it? So you were, when you go, when you went into Bamako, you, that was how, how many hours into the flight? Bamako was probably about the midway point. So it was probably six or seven hours into the flight. Okay. Okay. So you'd been hand flying, holding a fly slider, or you had it wedged in there for a good five or six hours or so. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, you know, it's, it's kind of fatiguing hand flying in a condition like that. You can't really see much. And, and one of the biggest inconveniences that night was 
I wasn't able to read my book that I normally read because I couldn't read and <laughs> hold a heading at the same time. So I literally just had to sit there and do an instrument scan for six straight hours. Mm, man, that, that is mentally fatiguing. Yeah. I couldn't even listen to my radio because my Walkman used the same batteries as my flashlight, and I only had one set left. So about an hour or so after Bamako, another problem popped up. My, my flashlight started getting dim, and I realized I was going to have to change batteries. And I realized at that point that uh, I really wish I'd had two flashlights mm. because while I changed the batteries, I was going to have no lights in the cockpit, so I wouldn't be able to see the instruments. And I also realized that if I screwed it up, I was probably going to die because I had, you know, if I dropped a part of the flashlight, and couldn't find it. That was it. I wasn't going to be able to control the airplane. I was still in the clouds, pitch black. I couldn't see the instruments at all. And uh, so I'd lose control of the plane. So mm. I put the batteries in my mouth and practiced the procedure a couple times. It was a mini mag light. You twist the bat the bottom off and yeah, I was able to do it, but uh, it was kind of a dicey thing. <laughs> Such a simple process. That, yeah, isn't that amazing? One of those simple things that could have meant really the difference in life and death for you. If you just screwed up just the changing of those batteries, you drop a battery that you can't reach or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and a little too late, I realized I should have changed batteries while I was over Bomical because the glowing lights of mm -hmm. the city would have allowed me to see a little bit in case I did anything. Mm -hmm. But too late for that. So, But I was successful. I managed to change batteries in a flashlight without dying. So... <laughs> good for me. A little while after that, I flew out of the clouds and I could tell that because I could start to see stars out. Mm. And I turned the flashlight down. I dimmed it. I kept dimming it and dimming it, letting my night vision kind of adapt. And at a certain point, I, was, I realized I was able to turn the flashlight off completely and see the instruments by starlight, which was pretty awesome. Yeah. Gorgeous night. I mean, out over the Sahara with no light pollution at all, and up about twelve thousand feet above all the dust, it was it was pretty spectacular. Even though I was still in pretty bad situation, it was a, a kind of a magical night at that point. Until the GPS died, which was shortly after that. <laughs> mm, mm, that internal battery finally went. Huh? Yep, the internal battery finally gave up the ghost, and that was maybe an hour before sunrise. So. Mm. I just kind of held the heading that I had, and a little bit after that, I could start to see a glow on the eastern horizon, and finally the the sun came up, and it was that was a huge relief. I mean, that was a a big morale booster. You know, the night was finally over. Yeah, but my night wasn't done. I still had three hours to go, and I had to find the Ivory Coast. I had to find Abidjan, and there's nothing else around it. And without a, without a GPS, I realized, okay, if I've just got this heading. And no winds aloft, no idea what the winds aloft are. I had my last heading from the GPS, but it, it can change in three hours. Mm -hmm. I realized, you know, I could miss the city. And I looked at my map, and on either side of the city, it, the city's on the coast, there was nothing. There's no other towns. There's just one town in the middle of kind of a deserted African coastline. It's kind of on that southern coast with the African bulge. And the other problem I considered is, I mean, I might miss a city. Which way do I go? If I come, if I hit the coast, yeah. is it to the left or to the right? And it's a 50-50 shot. Right, yeah. Hey, listeners. Do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. 
you'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. Find out more at AOPA.org. Were you worried, too, about the, the sort of political environment there in terms of you obviously had approval to go to the Ivory Coast, but given the dynamics over there, either side of that, was that something that was a concern at all? A little bit. Um, that yeah. kind of was coming into play later in the, the next day when I hit the Congo, which I knew was kind of a dicey area to fly over. But most of that night, I was <laughs> I just wanted to find an airport. I kind of wanted that night to be over. Yeah. Yeah. So I so I sat and looked at my map and pondered that puzzle. You know, what if I miss the airport? What if I miss the city left or right? What do I do? I mean, if I chose the wrong direction, I'd probably run out of gas. I didn't have fuel to choose to search right and left. Mm-hmm. And as the sun came up, I was I left the Sahara and I was over kind of jungly area. And I look I looked down at the at the treetops and I could see mist coming off the trees. And I could tell that right over the treetops, there wasn't any wind. You know, it was calm in the morning, which is typical. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I figured, well, I don't know what the wind is up here, but I know it's calm down there. So and I have a good heading now because the GPS had only died a little bit ago. So I I descended down to treetop level and flew right off the trees until the wind came up because I figured, okay, now I won't have any drip wind drift component and I can hold a straight course toward my destination. Great. And that worked out fine for maybe an hour until the wind picked up mm. and I could see the treetops blowing and the w- mist blew away and it looked like the wind was out of the West. So I was trying to figure out, well, so how much of a wind correction should I do? And then I thought about it and I had an idea, you know what, if I, if I put in a huge correction to the west, like 30 or 40 degrees, a big one, that should assure me that I will hit the coast to the west of the city. And then I'll know that the city should be to my left, to the east. Yeah, yeah. And like that was kind of yeah. a hallelujah moment. It's like, well, God, yeah. why didn't I think of that before? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's great. So, so I did that, altered my course to the west, flew along, and luckily... There wasn't, it wasn't cloudy over the coast. That was my other concern. If it was, I am, you know, if I was IFR over the coast, which I had no idea if it was going to be or not, I wouldn't see the coast and I would just fly out over the ocean again until I ran out of gas. But it wasn't. I saw the coast. So as soon as I hit the coast, I took a left and flew along and there was nothing at first. It was just deserted coastline like it was been, you know, hundreds of years ago. Then I started to see a couple of huts, some farmland, then a road. And then lo and behold, there's a city off in the gloom and in, in the misty morning. So what a beautiful sight. <laughs> it sure was. I was pretty happy, pretty happy to see that city. And you looked at my map and I saw where the airport was and I flew toward it. I could see the control tower. So I started circling about, you know, five miles away, trying to get their attention in the morning. It was first thing in the morning, looking for a light gun signal and nothing, nothing. So I circled, you know, I started making my way a little closer and then I got closer. It's about a mile and circle and circle, nothing like, you know what? I've had about enough of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really want to be done flying. So I buzzed the tower right at 500 feet, right at the top of them. Just, <laughs> Hey, wake up guys. <laughs> and I turned around and still nothing. I'm like, are you kidding me? And I turned on the ra- on the radios, but there was, they were dead. Everything, everything the whole yeah. the battery was completely dead. So my next task was get the landing gear down because it's a 210, has retractable landing gear. Mm-hmm. Said earlier I'd looked at it and said it was going to take about 50, 60 pumps on the, the emergency extension handle. So I got to work pumping the landing gear down. And if you've never done it, it comes down about a quarter of an inch at a time. So it takes quite a while to, to pump the gear down. Mm. 
and an unnerving part about it, you know, eventually it got too hard. I couldn't pump anymore. The gear looked down, but I don't have any electricity to run the, the down and locked lights, the little three green lights you like to see. So yeah. it was just like, well, I, I hope it's down a lock. I have no way I know him, but did all I could. Didn't see any traffic and just came in and landed smooth as I could. And uh, about four, I think it was 14 and a half hours after leaving Morocco. I was down in the Ivory Coast. Wow. 14 and a half hours. Yeah. <laughs> it was a long night. Of course, my little adventure wasn't quite over yet. There was one last hurdle. As I'm taxiing in to the, go to the FBO, this guy comes flying up in a Jeep and he's what yelling and waving. I'm like, I can't hear you. I'm <laughs> got a headset on, airplane's running. Shut it down and climb out. It's like the airport manager wants to see you immediately. He's really mad. I'm like, oh jeez, can I go to the bathroom? No, get in right now. Fine. Go to the go to the airport manager's office, and he's he's hopping mad. Um, the Ivory Coast is run by the French, mm-hmm. and they have French people, French citizens running the airport. And this is a Frenchman, and he's he's yelling at me. We haven't we've been looking for you all night. Eleven countries sent planes out searching all night, which I knew was probably not true, but somebody was going to get a bill for something. And what have you been? What have you done? Like, look. I explained my situation and lost my alternator, no radios. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Not dead. Wasn't my what choice. Yeah. Right. He's like, I don't care, blah, blah, blah. But luckily for me, um, the French citizens that work there, they they do nine months on, three months off. And he was leaving for his three month off vacation that afternoon. And he told me if he wasn't leaving, he'd throw me in jail, but he didn't have time to deal with me right now. Had me write out a statement and kicked me out of his office, and and that was it. I went to the hotel and went to bed. Wow, what a, what an ordeal. What a great technique, Carrie, to isolate your search, to take that carve out so that you know there's, you know, you don't get in this right or left 50-50 shot, and then you have to fly with this completely unknown, did I make the right choice or not, which I would imagine the miles then just grind away, you know, because you're minds playing tricks with you thinking you've gone the wrong way but to just take that carve out and know for sure i'm going to miss it but i know i'm going to miss it off to my left yeah i was like i mentioned it's kind of a eureka moment it's like that would work and I, at first i thought so should i do like a five degree maybe 10 degree then i thought well you dummy <laughs> make it a big correction i mean don't don't do any <laughs> don't do a half measure here if you're gonna if you're gonna make a correction make a big one because it really it would really be a bummer because, you know, looking at the map, I realized if I, if I went the wrong way, either east or west, I would fly until I ran out of gas. And then I was thinking, okay, am I going to try to put it down in the jungle? Am I going to land on the beach? You know, so I'm already getting ready to, to crash land hours before I'd run out of gas. So, Wow. So as you look back on that, Kerry, what are some of the lessons learned that you think the rest of us GA pilots can take from that experience? Well, number one try to always have a, a back door when you're making a flight like this. I do this for all every, all my flights. You know, I, I try not to get into a position where, all right, I have to make it to my destination. But sometimes when I'm either flying over the ocean or in that case, over the desert with the airport closed behind me, you don't really have a choice. But, if, you know, losing your altimeter, you know, number one, isolate your power, save whatever juice you have in the battery. You might need you know, you might need the radio to fly an ILS at your landing. You know, if you're in IFR conditions, save that juice. You know, turn the radios off. You know, turn the lights off. Turn everything off that you don't need. And uh, 
conserve that because you've only got what juice you have in the battery at that point and got to be careful with it. Mm -hmm. And then we talked about when you're searching for something to try to isolate it on one side or the other was great. It seems like fuel wasn't a big factor. You had plenty enough fuel to take some cuts like you did and not worry too much about it. You weren't cutting it too close in terms of fuel there. No, my original flight plan gave me about a two-hour reserve, which was kind of nice. Okay, yeah. Not enough to search both directions if I missed the city in the first place, but enough that I could make a big cut to the west and not worry about fuel so much. Yeah. Well, another exciting adventure from Kerry McCauley, ferry pilot. Thanks so much for sharing your story with us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Richard. Well, I've always heard that ferry pilots are a different breed, and Kerry kind of illustrates that. And the stories that he tells in his book and on our videos are so exciting. And it's not that they don't look at risk. They do very detailed risk analysis. They're just willing to accept more risk than a lot of us. You know, you're flying a single-engine piston airplane at night over the Atlantic. That just takes a different level of risk calculation. And then, as we mentioned, their mental discipline to just stick with the issue, not let anxiety set in, and then being able to adapt and overcome the situations they encounter. Some exciting stories from a ferry pilot. We're so glad he shared them with us. Thank you for joining us on this edition of There I Was. Alongside our producer, David O'Leary, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.